when, when I uh, think of God's faithfulness like we were singing, uh, it always makes me feel unworthy because he's faithful. But uh, that kind of always highlights uh, my inability to be faithful as I think I should be faithful. And that is a beautiful thing. I mean, that just magnifies and uh, makes us realize God's grace is great in Jesus Christ. Well, we're in our timely truths, sobering sayings of Jesus. This is our 16th sobering saying of Jesus. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I'm not sure how this is going to go this morning because... um, Unlike some of the other sobering sayings, um, light is such a prominent and important feature of who Jesus is and Jesus as the revelation of God, and yet as the revelation, he also exposes our distance from God um, he exposes just how much darkness is in our lives, especially if we are turned from the light. So I wanted to uh, share a number of things uh, with us. Last, uh, last Sunday was our True Love Waits conference, and it was a, a wonderful experience. But because of that, Uh, I didn't have to get up at the crack of dawn. And uh, normally I record the CBS network Sunday morning show so that I can watch it. And they, uh, at the top of their show, had a feature uh, titled Feeling Lonely? You're Not Alone. And their lead line was nearly half of Americans say they sometimes or always. Now that just about covers everybody. Sometimes or always feel alone. It's the always feel alone that I think is especially painful. They go on to say that loneliness can have health consequences. In fact, a study, they quote, says that according to doctors, loneliness can lead to increased mortality. That means death. Increased mortality equal to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So I I don't know what that index is like, but um, that seems to me to be indicative of the impact that loneliness has on our lives. In fact, loneliness has a connection, I think, to darkness and death. Well, why do I tell you that? 
Well, this week I, I was struggling. You know, we, we live in light. <laughs> you know, it, I mean, light is everywhere. If we had a power outage all of a sudden, we could pull out a hundred phones and illumine the room. I mean, we are not light poor. We are light rich. The richest people in the history of the world. Light is at our fingertips. Light is everywhere. In fact, rarely are we without light. And some of us even sleep with night lights. Loneliness is a form of darkness that can't be dispelled by any physical light. And I think it's important for us to understand that loneliness, unlike solitude, uh, by the way, in this show that I saw, this CBS show, in that same episode on loneliness, um, John Francis, at uh, age 27, decided not to talk anymore. And he didn't talk for 17 years until he was age 44. There was a man who yearned for solitude. He was comfortable with himself. But solitude, although it may look like loneliness, is not the same as loneliness. I was lonely in my teens. It doesn't mean I've never been lonely at other times, but I remember being lonely in my teens. I, I can remember many of the, the sensations that accompanied loneliness. Even though I had friends, many friends, and had a level of popularity, which is so important in high school, I never lacked for a party to go to or someone to hang out with. I had friends among different groups, but I was lonely. And I was lonely particularly for two reasons. Two reasons rooted in one reason. And the one reason was fear. And the two manifestations or concerns of fear were that I was fake. I couldn't really be myself. I felt like the real me was hidden. I knew how to gain acceptance. I, know, I knew how to be popular, but I didn't know how to be truly myself. And I was lonely because I was afraid that if you really knew who I was or if I was really myself, you wouldn't like me. You wouldn't accept me. You wouldn't applaud me. You wouldn't want me around. That's a great fear that you can't share with anybody. And so it isolates you. 
And that's a loneliness. That's a loneliness that you can't share with family, that you can't share with the people that you spend time with. So even in the company of others, you are alone. And the other thing that was rooted in that fear was a fear of the future. Because I was afraid in high school that I wasn't prepared for the future. Now maybe that was rooted in some stupid thinking. And uh, teenagers like myself did a lot of stupid thinking. But I was under the assumption that high school was to prepare me for the future. And since I had cheated my way through high school so I could hang out with people who I wanted to accept me and to prove me, I wasn't prepared for the future. I wasn't prepared for graduation. I was afraid of the future. And I can remember laying in bed wondering, what am I going to do? How am I going to get a job? When they realize, just like I was afraid to tell my friends who I really am, how's somebody going to hire me if they find out I'm a fraud? You see, there was a lot of darkness in my life. It, you know, as I look back on it now, I know so much more. I would maybe say, hey, buck up, kid. You'll be all right. You know, hang in there. But that's not the way it works, is it? There are things going on inside of us that a buck up or it'll all work out, is not going to heal. And there are shades of darkness that people live with that will never be exposed to the light of day or the light of knowledge unless they meet the light of the world. Loneliness is uh, nearer to death than you would imagine. Because when you're lonely, you think like this. People don't care. And when you think people don't care, then you think you don't matter. And when you think you don't matter, you think you don't count. And when you think you don't count, you're nothing. And that is death. We have a lot of trouble facing death. I don't think I've ever been that far away from it. And I would just insert here, even though I'm trying to build a case here, so I want Jesus to stay in the wings just a little longer. It's much easier to visit death, to think about death, to confront it, to wrestle with it, to face up to it when you have Christ in your life. So I was never that far from death as a young man, especially after I came to Christ and, and met Shelley, and then I worried about what would happen to my library. 
Or what would happen if I lost Shelley? Isn't it funny, though? Even that isn't really confronting my death because I'm kind of the omniscient person who's wrestling with all this stuff. And that's what comes out in a book I really want to high, highly recommend to you by Matthew McCullough, Remember Death. Remember Death. It's easy to remember death. <laughs> it's a great read. It's well written. There's so much that's quotable. And I w- would read excerpts to Shelley. But loneliness, feeling like you don't matter, that you're nothing, that's really close, closer to death than, than we may admit. Because without Christ, that's what becomes of us. In his book, he says, uh, Sigmund Freud argued that in the unconscious, each one of us is convinced of his immortality. That's actually quoting Freud. Then McConaughey says, if asked about it, of course, we'd acknowledge we will die like everyone else will die. We would admit that the world will keep on spinning once we're gone. But imagine for a moment what your world would look like a week after you've died. So you have to do that. And I'm not going to give you much time. But just try. Just try to imagine that. What do you see? Makana concludes, uh, perhaps your loved ones are grieving. Can you see that? They're finding ways to cope without you. He continues, a fickle friend. Can you see that fickle friend? Wishing that he'd been nicer to you? Or your co-workers finally realizing they depended on you more than they ever knew? But now they realize it because you're gone? What you imagine isn't really the point, he says. He says the point is, is that whatever you see, you're still the one seeing it. And when you try to imagine yourself as dead, you're still there, still surviving as a spectator. So Freud suggested, fundamentally, quote, fundamentally, no one believes in his own death. But we're all going to die. And that means we become nothing. And in his book, he points out how we forget. No matter what are our achievements, even if buildings on great campuses of Huge, impressive, notable universities have your name on the building because 
You contributed millions of dollars to that institution. Or you discovered the cure for cancer in time. Even that erodes and those buildings crumble and your name is replaced and another is funded in its stead. Do you remember the details or even the names of your great-grandmother, grandfather? Even people that we never think we'd forget are forgotten. It's nothing. You see, if you think about that, and you think about that in terms of death, and you think about it in terms of darkness, and you think about it in terms of aloneness, then when you hear the words eternal life, well, as McCullough says, um, he says, those are the sweetest words in the world. And the same is true of the words, I am the light of the world. And what I want to encourage us to do is to appreciate the light of the world. And to do that with Jesus as the light of the world, I want us to look at some scripture in the Gospel of John. It'll help us to... Walk in the light. Can you advance that slide for me? I want to look at these three passages of Scripture this morning. There's a lot of verses, so we won't be able to do a thorough job. But these are constellations in which the word light occur in the Gospel of John. And there are three areas where they uh, kind of congregate. And the first is in the first chapter, verses 4 through 13. I'd like to read it to you. Sometimes we don't spend that much time in the Gospel of John. I want you to listen to how the Gospel opens. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then our verses begin. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, from God, whose name was John, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might become, all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, and you can understand that as not only the true light, but the full light, the complete light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus, in this very exalted relationship, um, intimacy with God the Father, he, the Logos, is the creator of all things. Nothing was created that was created if it wasn't created without him. He is life that is greater than existence, and that life is the light, the revelation to humanity, the light of humanity. That's what the expression means in verse 4. And then in verse 5, the darkness is dispelled. It can't over, overcome. The word also can mean comprehend the light. And so they are at odds. They are at war. The light coming into the world, we're told, how does it result? Those who come to the light are changed. It isn't just knowledge. Light is certainly knowledge. It's revelation of things we didn't know. But it's not just knowledge. It's an opportunity to move toward that knowledge, to move toward that light. And what's the outcome? The outcome is to become a child of God on the authority of the one who is the light that has come into the world. It's a greater existence. It's an existence that brings an end to death and introduces us as children of God characterized by life without end, life greater than the life that we have at birth, a new birth, a born again or a born from above experience. That's something I want us to appreciate in verses 4 through 13, the light brings death to an end in the love of God. Because if you respond, you become a child of God. Not just a seer of light. If you move toward the light, the very character of light changes you. And you become characterized by light. Second thing I want us to see is in chapter 3. It starts at verse 16. For God so loved the world. So, light is life revealed. The life of God in the light coming into the world. This life is experienced through the, and in response to, the love of God. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. A second thing we really see here is that the judgment has already taken place. You really need to appreciate that. Paul says it in his own way. He says we're all dead. Everyone dies. It's the judgment of God. God has broken into this, disrupted, interrupted this judgment in Jesus Christ. John says, reveals it here as well. Judgment has already taken place. Death is that judgment. But the darkness of our human plight is pierced by the Son sent, the light of the world, the love of God. See how all those concepts merge the light is the love of God. Really, when you think of it, light is welcoming, unless it's, you know, just blinding light, but it's welcoming, it's warming, it's, it's safe. And then in chapter 9, there's only one verse that we can draw on where the word light occurs, and that's verse 5. That's where Jesus again says, I am the light of the world. But the entire chapter, chapter 9, verse 1, all the way to verse 41, is the story of a man born blind. In other words, he didn't see and then lose his sight. He never had his sight. He never had eyes that worked right. And in verse 8, it tells us that that man was known. People recognized him. And he's described in the Bible. Here's his characteristic, sitting and begging. Do you think that man was lonely? The world literally passing him by. Literally not counting. Not really being seen. And not being able to see. And one day Jesus comes along and his disciples seeing the man sitting there begging, they say, who sinned, this man or his parents? Even the religious leaders later in the chapter, they themselves say, you were born in sin to this man. Wow, I came to the church for help. Well, you're born in sin, and they cast him out. 
And Jesus said, ah, he wasn't born in sin. He didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. He was born this way that this, on this occasion we might display the glory of God. And Jesus spit right at that moment. I, I visualized that this week. You know, just imagine you're one of the disciples there. And Jesus says, the glory of God. I mean, that's, that's the way it reads. He didn't say another word. He says, he didn't say, stay right here a moment. I mean, he just spit on the ground, and then he kneeled, and he made it into kind of a clay, and he, he hasn't even talked to this man yet, and he puts it on his eyes. So the man who's blind all of a sudden feels someone wiping something cool and pasty on his eyes. And he says, make your way to the pool, Bethesda, wash, and you will see. And he did, and he saw. And all the people who saw him walking around weren't sure it was him. Is that the guy? I remember he, he sat in bag, but I'm not sure that's the same guy. And so they took him to the religious leaders. They took him to the synagogue. And they questioned him. And each time he tells them exactly what has happened. And the religious leaders aren't sure about this. He said, they think the guy's a sinner because they, in his story, he said, yeah, you know, this is what he did, and it was the Sabbath. So this man's healing was done on the Sabbath. It broke the law. So they did the logic, and they began to say, well, this man... This isn't of God, because this man's a sinner. Not the, not the blind man, the healing man. And that's all he knows of him. Who did this? Who did this wonderful thing for you? You know, I, I don't know. It was a man. That's how he begins. And then, when the Pharisees question him, he tells them the same story. And they said, oh, well, he's a sinner. And then they asked the blind man, he says, uh, well, who, who do, what do you think about the man? Who do you think he is? He says, hmm, well, he, he gave me my sight. I think he's a prophet. So he goes from a man to a prophet. Then the religious leaders say, get his parents in here. So they bring his parents in, and they interview them. And they said, are you his parents? And they said, yeah. Uh, how did this happen? Well, we don't know. What did he tell you? Well, tell us this. Was he really blind? Was he born blind at birth? Yeah, yeah, he was. And they said, uh, 
what do you think's going on here? And the parents said, look, you know, he's old enough to speak for himself. You ask him. So they call the blind man back in, and this time it really gets heated, and they're divided over the light. Because the man will not back down. He won't back off what he knows. That's very important. He could have changed his story to to fit in, to go along, to get along. He could have thought, you know what, the religious leaders, they must know the truth. This man must be a sinner. I must be a sinner. My parents must be sinners. What this man did must be wrong. He must be a sinner because he did this on the Sabbath. And you know what? This happens in our spiritual life a lot of the time. Our vision of Jesus, our notion of him is a version shaped by other people. This man stuck to his story. He said, all I know is once I was blind, but now I see. And they said, well, tell, him, tell us again, how did, how did he do this? And he says, you're not listening to me. I already told you. You must want to become his disciples. And boy, they blew up at that. And they said, we are not his disciples. We are disciples of Moses. You're his disciple. And they threw him out of the synagogue. Well, this is the first time now that Jesus has been back. He's never seen Jesus. Jesus comes up to him. You know, his eyes have never seen Jesus. And he comes up to him. He finds him. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man says, "Uh, no, but point him out and I will. And Jesus says, I am that man who speaks to you. And the blind man called him Lord and worshiped him. And that's the only place in the Gospel of John that the earthly Jesus is worshiped. He held to the light. In fact, he walked in the light. And the light was a a kind of sight And do you realize that when you are given light, it is a kind of sight on things spiritual, things about the identity of Jesus Christ. And in believing in him, it's a sight that allows us to see into our own relationship with him unless we retreat from the light into the darkness. What's it mean to walk in the light? I read a, a, a story. I had to reread it because it had been a while, but it came to mind. Um, the author, um, he wrote the book, Everything You Need to Know, or Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Robert Fulgham, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, In another book that he wrote 
it was on fire. He tells about a time of sojourn in his life when he went to travel to the island of Crete and a small village there where there's a Greek Orthodox monastery. And as a part of that monastery, there is a, a ministry, a building with a ministry of reparation. Reparation is the work of harmonizing people who are at complete odds, enemies. Reparation has to do with bringing people to a oneness of mind and heart who are enemies. It's interesting that this is on Crete because during World War II, the Nazis overran Crete and their stormtroopers lined up hundreds of citizens and shot them. And they controlled all of society. They took over their houses. Those people lived as refugees within their own cities, their own villages and towns. And it's there that there is a man who has been working for reparation between Germans and Greeks, bringing them together. And it was there that Fulgham was, uh, was studying for a while. And at the end of a course or a day of course with, the, with Alexander, Father Dr. Alexander Papadaris, he, at the end of the lecture, said, and I used to do this when I would teach, I'd say, are there any questions? And so he said, are there any questions? And of course, at that point, students are stirring and beginning to, you know, they're on their way out the door mentally already. And it was at that point that Robert Fulgham said, I have a question. What is the meaning of life? I think he might have had just a little wink in his heart when he did that. But Dr. Papadaris took it very seriously. And he reached into his back pocket and pulled out a wallet. And from his wallet, he fished out a small round mirror. He said, when I was a child and the, our country was occupied, I found in a puddle near a wrecked German motorcycle pieces of glass. I tried to find all the pieces to reconstruct the mirror. He was very poor, he said, raised in a very poor family, so a mirror might have been very intriguing, but he couldn't find all the pieces. It was impossible, so he took the largest piece, and uh, over time, as a child growing up, he, uh, by rubbing it on a rock, he was able to take that large piece and make it into a small mirror. And he began to play a game in his life where he would take that mirror and he would take the light from the sun and reflect it into the deep crevices and corners where no light could ever shine. And that became something of a game to find places that he could shine the light. But as an adult, he realized it was not just a child's game. And it became his purpose for life. And that's why, in fact, he's in the ministry of reparation, bringing people together. He's trying to shine light 
into dark places. But here's the thing. You have to have the light. You're not the light. You can only reflect the source of light that you have. And in our world, there are a lot of people who reflect a lot of human light. But you see, as we've seen, stepping from chapter 1 into chapter 3 and then into chapter 9, we have a light that is greater than any earthling or human light. It's a light of new birth. It's a light of new life. It's a light of life above life. And it's a light of oneness. I want to close with three verses. These verses are from John. Uh, because John tells us how to walk in the light in his letter. In verse, the first chapter of 1 John, verse 6 and 7, he says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. That's a oneness that is found. What's the definition of fellowship? This is it. You walk in the light, I walk in the light, and all of a sudden we realize we're one in Christ. He's the light. In 1 John 2, 6, by the way, when you come to the light, when you return to the light, when you get tired of the dark and you believe in the light, he cleanses and purifies us. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, the one who says he abides in the light ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And then verses 10 and 11, very important. Verse 10 is a life verse for me. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. How many people have you converted with angry words? How many friends on Facebook have you collected with angry words? But how about love? Words that are shaped by the love of God. All the beautiful things, all the good things. How about you reflecting His light into the difficult situations of your marriage, your work, your heart? Only Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Will you stand with me? I want to pray for us. I want to remind you, we'll be down here for prayer. Leaders, spouses, if you'd like to pray this morning, walk in the light. Heavenly Father, thank you. Shine bright. Expose all the junk. Burn it away with your light. 
So there are no secrets between us, no posturing, no posing. We can be honest with one another. We can reveal what we're really afraid of so that we can find the healing that comes with knowing you, you are our shepherd. You are our bread. You are our light. You are the way. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, we praise you. And all of God's people said, God bless you.